What if you got the chance to dive to the bottom of the ocean? Would you go? And what would you find there? That's today's big question, and my returning guest, one of my all-time favorites, is Dr. Dawn Wright, better known the world over as Deep Sea Dawn. Dawn recently became the 27th person ever in history, and the first black person ever to dive to the Challenger Deep, the deepest part of Earth's ocean. Dawn is an elected member of both the National Academy of Sciences and the National Academy of Engineering, and the chief scientist at ESRI, where she works with other scientists to map the ocean floor in 3D. I've got a podcast. Look, as our oceans heat up and rise, and as we try to reduce overfishing, and as our governments and companies race to mine minerals for our all-electric future, there has never been a more monumental and historic and vitally important project like trying to understand our oceans. Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. In our weekly conversations, I take a deep dive with an incredible human like Dawn, who's working on the front lines of the future in the deepest parts of the ocean to build a radically better today and tomorrow for everyone. Along the way, we're going to discover tips, strategies, and stories you can use to get involved and to become more effective for yourself, your family, your city, our oceans, our world. A lot has happened since Dawn and I last spoke. It shouldn't be surprising then that this conversation not only talked about the deep seas and the wonder of the deep seas and the Earth's crust, but also went to some wonderful and unexpectedly emotional places. It's been a lot. I'm so thankful to have shared another conversation with Deep Sea Dawn. As always, you can reach me for questions at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Uh, Don Wright, welcome back to the show. Quinn. Oh, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for having me back again. Oh my gosh. Well, uh, it it has it has been a little while, uh, which is which is crazy, and a lot has happened. Um, and and I know you've been doing exceptional work in the meantime in a variety of ways. So I'm excited to dig into it. And last time we still do this, which is a little wild, but last time I think. We started off the conversation. I've started every conversation since by asking folks, why are you vital to the survival of the species? But I'm going to change it up for you because this is your second rodeo and say, why are you vital to the survival of our oceans, Deep Sea Dawn? The people ah, <laughs> I am vital as, uh, as one of many. So uh, the survival of our oceans, uh, the survival of our one interconnected ocean and the survival of our planet is dependent upon all of us. So I am vital just as a part of the the family of humanity that is doing everything that we can to to save our ocean. One one cog in the beautiful machine uh, doing doing my part and uh, speaking truth to power about the ocean. I love it. I love it. Well, uh, folks, if you're not familiar, again, I'll have done a whole intro and given everybody the spiel about uh, how incredible you are and how 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 meaningful you are to, to life here on Earth in the huge variety of ways uh, 
that that is encompassed. Um, but uh, I'm excited to to dig into everything that has happened uh, since we last spoke and and what you're what you're working on now. What everyone, so many folks are working on now. So, as we briefly discussed offline, it has been four years since our last conversation. Good thing, Dawn. Not a lot <laughs> has changed. Not a lot has changed. <laughs> I let's see. I moved my family across the country. We're back in Virginia. I'm calling you from above a candy shop. Ooh. It is fantastic. All right. Um, it appears that you have gotten the winner that I expected, though, which is kind of, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> yes. this, this thing is getting a little more unpredictable, Don. Um, yes. <laughs> but if you don't mind, let's tell folks, how have you spent these past four years? And then I know you've had quite the eventful past 12 months. Well, interestingly enough, that the past four years have, have been uh, about the same for me. I'm, I'm in the same location uh, here in Redlands, California. Uh, near Palm Springs, where we are getting uh, quite a bit of, of snow. <laughs> In fact, the community that lives uh, a couple thousand feet above us is uh, stranded uh, in five to eight to 10 feet of snow. So uh, global weirding, this is global weirding uh, in action. Yeah, but because I work for a software company, we have actually been able to be as productive throughout the pandemic as, as we normally uh, would have been. In fact, for, for many of my colleagues, they have been more productive and working from home has actually been better for them, especially those who, who are really writing code, hardcore code, and uh, they need to be in an uninterrupted, uh, concentrated space, uh, the, the pandemic uh, has actually not been completely uh, bad for them. I know that the pandemic has has affected all of us in many ways. And, and during that that period of time, I lost my mother. So that no, was a, so that was the major that. event for me. She did not. And thank you for for your kind words. Uh, we did not lose her to COVID. But it, it was just her time, and it, it happened during that time. So I, I bring that up, though, because even before the pandemic started, uh, my company uh, gave me the uh, option of working from home so that I could care for her as primary caregiver. So uh, when the pandemic hit, it was actually uh, not that big of a transition uh, for me. And in, in fact, it actually saved me in a way because uh, my travel almost completely disappeared, which is, which is what I needed. I needed to, to be here, to be at home, to care for my mom. And uh, I'm able, as, as you can see with my home office here, surrounded by my Christmas lights and Legos, I can be just as productive, even more so uh, from the home office. <laughs> so <Sure. laughs> the pandemic uh, has, has hit us in, in various ways, but uh, over the last four years, it, it's been uh, quite a ride, even here from from my my home office because of all the things that we've been able to do that all of us can in fact I hope that your podcast but audioship uh, those who who listen into important not important I hope that is skyrocketed as it should uh, because I think a lot of people are are turning to podcasts as ways to to find light and meaning and even purpose real lifelines so thank you for what you're doing. No, uh, of course, and and again, I'm I'm so very sorry to to hear about your mom. Um, I was gonna pivot for a moment because, as you know, we you know, 
I try to cover sort of, as we say, it's science for people who who give a shit, right? And that's and that really is, it's climate, it's which is five hundred different things from the oceans to soils to solar panels, whatever it might be. And we do public health, which we obviously do a lot more of, and and data, which ties into all those things as well. But you know, I've 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 tried to educate myself over the past couple of years as much as I can on the state of home care, because it is obviously, I guess not obviously, if you've never had to be involved in any way, whether with a grandparent or a parent or whoever it might be, you not might not realize how difficult the day-to-day work can be, uh, whether you are, again, a, a child or a grandchild or a caregiver themselves, um, but also the state of uh, home care as it is. I mean, just in general, the U.S. was short hundreds of thousands of nurses before COVID and, and home care is becoming incredibly difficult to find folks. In a more specific situation, uh, about two, three months ago, I lost a cousin who was only 38 to um, ALS and finding even hospice care for her. I mean, these folks were bouncing around town, you know, running around because there's just no availability and and they're yeah. i mean a difficult job enough as it is so i wonder um if you don't mind if you could you know speak a little bit about what that experience was like and and if that was if it was a surprise to you what was required and and what might be required for us to rebuild those ranks of folks who do very essential work especially as you know the boomer generation is is enormous and and entering that territory. Yes. I'm so very sorry for your loss too, Quinn. The the last last, uh, two to three to four years have been uh, a time of loss for for so many of us and a time of sheer exhaustion. The way that I, uh, and I had difficulty uh, finding uh, good care uh, for for my mother towards the end. Uh, it's, It's the same thing. We are stretched too thin uh, we don't have the the capacity or even even the care, I think, in, in terms of how our government systems uh, work in order to to do the, the to have the whole package uh, for those of us who are part of this society, part of this country. And we have a chief medical officer at our software company, which uh, which I think is really cool. And she has written and spoken to this. It's Esty Garrity. Uh, the chief medical officer of Esri, and uh, she and I have had discussions about how uh, our healthcare system, despite all of our efforts, is still broken. It's still too hard to to get care at all levels. Even now, uh, the uh, with the pandemic emergency being declared over here in California, that's uh, I, I'm I'm not okay with that. So I'm still going out in my mask, and I'm I'm mentioning this because I was super super uh, careful going over and beyond uh, with with my mother. She was so uh, vulnerable, and uh, getting her uh, doctor's appointments. Uh, she was misdiagnosed at one point, and we almost lost her uh, because of that. And I, for me. And I think for for all of us, it is uh, self-advocating, self-advocacy, looking out for yourself, uh, doing your own homework, not depending on our healthcare system in in many ways, doing your own homework, maybe not doing your own diagnoses, but 
uh, in the case with my mother, uh, I, I got a second and a third opinion, and I just switched her over to a doctor who was able to to give her uh, the proper the proper care uh, at the end. And I depended on uh, friends at work to uh, just sort of through the grapevine, do you know of, of someone who could provide uh, home nursing care? And it turns out that a friend of mine at work uh, referred me to a, a an independent uh, nurse. He he just has his own business, and through word of mouth, he uh, provides care himself, or he's got his own team of nurses that he assigns for uh, home nursing and hospice care, and that's that saved me because uh, through her individual recommendation, I was able to to work with him who uh, he was fantastic and he paired me up with uh, a wonderful uh, nurse who was with me uh, to, to, the, very, to the, the very end for my mother. And it turned out that I had to, uh, I still couldn't turn everything over uh, to uh, a, a hospice care type of situation. We sort of had to jury rig it ourselves. And uh, I did it with, with this nurse uh, who who helped me to the end? They did. We did bring in a hospice, uh, a certified hospice nurse at the very very end, but uh, but we had done what was needed, and the nurse taught me uh, all of these things. And uh, as as you were mentioning before, you have no idea what you're going to be up against. It was really something. Uh, and I was thinking about the circle of life, how my mother changed my diapers when I was uh, a baby and it was a full circle. Uh, I, I got to to pay uh, the favor back and to care for her in, in that very intimate and very needed and special way. And it was it was hard, but it was, uh, it was it was a joy to do it because of all that my mother had had given for me, and we were best friends, and uh, we just wanted to give her the best uh, journey possible uh, and the mo- and the least painful journey, uh, and that was hard hard work, but it was uh, certainly I'm not using labor of love loosely here. That's really really what it's like. Sure. Yeah, but we have to be our own uh, advocates uh, and and watch out and and pay attention ourselves because I don't think our our government system, regardless of who is uh, in control, uh, I just think the United States is too complex. We just don't have what we need. We don't have it. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I always hesitate to. I try not to oversimplify when I'm when I'm digging into these obviously enormously complex things, and I'm nothing if not a, mm-hmm. a generalist in in so many <laughs> of these things. Whether it's mapping the ocean floors or 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 community health clinics or or whatever it might be, but there are certain things you can boil down and say we don't have what we need. We, you know, we we need so many more electricians. We need so many more nurses. We need to understand that. Someone like yourself, who has a full-time, very important job, as much as uh, it, it was helpful to be able to be remote, you're still expected to to do your job in some part while you're doing full-time care of, of a loved one, um, which is enormous work. And often, folks have to leave their jobs to do that kind of care. And yes. So they're not compensated. Yes. And what does that do? And getting into the logistics, not just of of, of the, the wellness, that part of the wellness journey and the health journey, but 
the legal side and the financial side, and all of these things that none of us are really trained to do in, in any capacity. And again, what, and then you come back to emails and spreadsheets and, and stuff like that. <laughs> it is, yeah. um, it is interesting. And like you said, the circle of life, you know, on the other hand, we also, uh, you know, had the child tax, uh, you know, benefit and it was great. And then we just let it go and you go like, what? On, on either end, we just seem so willing to drop the ball. Uh, on on purpose, and it I I don't understand why. I mean, I guess I do in a lot of respects, but it's it's frustrating. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any whatever we're calling it these days membership and community. It's a gathering place, really, for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists and policymakers and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top of mind weekly articles, research and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member sourced action steps, twice monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community. And we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. Or even when we don't want to drop the ball, uh, we, we do, you know, I, and I could switch to a different uh, subject uh, in terms of the environment, electric vehicles. So now, now that things are, are back and I'm freer to, to travel now because my, my mother has, has crossed over and uh, is, is uh, in, I, I believe in, in heaven. So I, she is there, but uh, anyway, I'm traveling a lot more now and I'm doing a lot of uh, interstate travel, and I have my electric vehicle. I'm, I think I'm doing my part, but the last month has been uh, has been pretty pretty rough because the electric vehicle stations, half of them are broken. Uh, half of them, you you get there and they are uh, they they're being refurbished, so no stations are available, and you've got maybe 10% charge left on your car. And it turns into a do or die uh, <laughs> adventure to to get from point A to point B in this new uh, economy where we're trying to electrify everything. And I'm in California, 
where we are supposed to have the, the best of the best. And it's still a struggle. And at every station that, I, that I've been stopping at, I've been having conversations with other electric vehicle drivers. And we're all, we're all saying the same thing, how our infrastructure, uh, we're, we're trying to do the, the right thing. And we have the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and, and all of this going on, but it's, it's still not trickling down to uh, those of us who are, who are in the trenches. So that's, that's another example. Um, well, I mean, there's so much to dig in there for sure. There's two amazing women um, who I, I'm trying to have on the show, and I truly cannot find their contact information. Yvette Ellis and uh, Camille Terry, I think, are their names. They run a. They started a company called Charger Help. Two amazing mm. um, uh, black women, and their whole thing is, we need to train thousands of people to maintain these things because they can't just be broken. Like the, it, you know, it's one thing to be, like, we're going to build all these carts. That's great, but if we don't have enough chargers. Forget if we have enough chargers. If half the ones we have don't work, great. But also if there's going to be all these people, we need electricians, we need to train them and they need to have jobs. Great. Let's let's build this workforce. So um, I'm, I'm all for the whole the whole supply chain because you're right. If it's not in working in California, then you know, it's not really working um, in other places. So that's amazing. Well, listen, thank you for sharing all that. I hope that wasn't too too private. Um, but it Oh, not at all. I'm, I'm very happy to share that. Yeah. As as much as we all, whether it's me podcasting from above a candy shop or doing these incredible things you've done, life goes on, right? Pandemics happen and we have loss and there's births and all these things. And and it, it would be great if we had more institutional infrastructure support to to be able to do all of those things, to to navigate all of that, much less to do that well. So Let's talk about going to the bottom of the ocean. How did this come about? What was the moment where you were, tell me about the moment where you were offered the opportunity to become 26th, 27th person to go to the Challenger Deep? Oh, gosh, I think I'm the 27th. And the story starts with uh, Kathy Sullivan. Okay. Kathy Sullivan, who, if you don't, if you haven't had her on your podcast, oh, my goodness, well, she is among so many things. She's the first American woman to walk in space. Uh, and she was the administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And uh, just an all-around uh, ama amazing person. And she has been, she and her agency have been uh, great friends of our company, Esri. Uh, NOAA and many other agencies use our software for all manner of, of their mapping needs so they are a customer, they're a collaborator. We do research together. Uh, Kathy Sullivan has, has come to, to speak at our conferences. She's a personal friend. And uh, Victor Vescovo, who is the uh, amazing explorer who has taken so many people down to Challenger Deep, he wanted to, to take Kathy Sullivan down in, to Challenger Deep in 2020. Uh, at the time... Uh, he also needed mapping support uh, aboard his ship, the Pressure Drop, because one of the things that the pre that the that those expeditions do is that not only are they sending people uh, down to the deepest parts of the ocean in Victor's amazing submersible, which is called the Limiting Factor, but the ship itself uh, is equipped with one of the most modern. Uh, seafloor mapping systems uh, in existence. And so the ship does a lot of mapping uh, of the ocean floor, either in the areas that they are diving in 
or in transit. And because we don't have, uh, we're still trying to get 100% of the seafloor mapped in that kind of detail by 2030, the pressure drop, they call it the good ship pressure drop. <laughs> Thinking back to the Shirley Temple song, for those of us who are old enough or who like classic film, <laughs> the good ship pressure drop uh, has collected uh, millions of, of square kilometers of, of new data. And they, they have been depending on uh, uh, staffing to do that. They had a transition in staffing. And to make a long story short, they, they asked uh, Esri to send people out to, to help them map on that expedition that was supporting Kathy Sullivan's dive. So uh, I was first asked to go out on the pressure drop in 2020. But as we know, that was right around the time when things were really starting to, to shut down due to the pandemic. And so uh, Esri, we were not able to send anybody out to support Kathy's dive with Victor, but we agreed to do a series of story maps uh, of the whole expedition. Story maps, those are uh, free applications that, that we uh, give to the world that help you to tell any type of story with maps and pictures and videos and narrative. Thousands, millions of story maps have been have been made now. Uh, but our the team that invented uh, that app, uh, they also make customized story maps for really special expeditions or projects such as this. So that started our relationship with Victor Vescovo. Uh, in in terms of supporting her her dive by by helping them to tell the, that story, and I can uh, give you the links to to Please. the story. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, Victor uh, and I got to know uh, each other uh, a little better after Kathy's dive, and her dive, by the way, made her the most vertical person in the universe because she had been up in space. She'd been the first American woman to walk in space, and in, on that dive, she became the first woman to dive to Challenger Deep. So it, it was truly a, a remarkable uh, feat. And uh, well, we could do, in Victor's another one you should have on your podcast, because you, you, the whole story of the five deeps expeditions that he had already completed, where, where he alone took his submersible to the five deepest places in the world ocean. Challenger Deep in the Pacific. The deepest place in the Atlantic is Puerto Rico Trench, uh, the Malloy Hole in the Arctic, the deepest spot in the Indian Ocean, in the Southern Ocean. At any rate, he had already completed that. Not very many people uh, know about that or know about all of the data that they have uh, collected, all of the species, uh, the biodiversity they have discovered that's uh, adding to this whole uh, conserving and understanding the ocean effort. Uh, after he completed that, he wanted to share, uh, expand uh, his accomplishments by taking people with him. So he then began to invite people like Kathy Sullivan to to go with him to Challenger Deep to make her the first woman. He's taken uh, Y.T. Lin, who's the first uh, Asian American uh, to Challenger Deep, uh, he took uh, Nicole Yamase uh, in 2021. She became the first uh, Pacific Islander. And as Victor and I got to know each other and he found out about my background uh, with diving uh, to the ocean floor and mapping the ocean floor and also because of, of what I do at Esri, 
he asked me to to make the dive to Challenger Deep. And and we were supposed to do that in 2021. And at that time, I was still trying to uh, shepherd my mother uh, to to the finish line, so to speak. And I was not sure uh, if I was going to be able to to do it. And this was also one of the reasons why I got nursing care for my mother, because I thought, well, if we do this, uh, I'm going to have to put my mother in the in the care of a full-time nurse and let's start practicing with that and let's see if we can make that work. And uh, unfortunately, through the practice phase, she uh, she passed and it, and it turned out with the scheduling uh, of the ship and the other dives and the other things that they were trying to accomplish that the dive was going to uh, be scheduled in 2022 in the summer, the spring or summer of 2022. So uh, I was able to to say unequivocally, yes, I, I will do this. I can do this with you. And I, I really can't describe what I felt when I first got the email from Victor asking me in the first place. I, I was uh, I was stunned. I was excited. It took my breath away. At the same time, I wasn't sure that I could do it, similarly to when he asked me to come out and help them map. Uh, uh, but but it was uh, everything worked out, and we we dove uh, last summer uh, in July, and it was uh, it was mind blowing. It for me it was, uh, and for I think most oceanographers going to. Challenger Deep is the moonshot because that is the deepest place that you can go. And if you are, uh, especially for someone like me who is a geologist, you know, that's one of the, the major plate tectonic boundaries uh, uh, on the planet. And it's also, it also gives you the full picture of, of, how, of how the ocean works. If, that's, if it's possible to do that in one 10, 10 and a half hour dive, that's what happened to me because sure, it's the deepest place on the planet, but the ocean works like a um, an integrated, interconnected machine. And even as we think about climate change and uh, the crazy weather, that is all dependent on, on the ocean and particularly on the heat that is circulated through through the ocean. You know, the ocean absorbs 90% uh, of the heat, especially of the heat that we generate from, from greenhouse gas emissions. The ocean is absorbing all of that, circulating it. Uh, it governs uh, our, our weather and our climate patterns. But Challenger Deep is part of that too because the deepest places in the ocean are part of circulating uh, that heat. So uh, it was just a thrill to be able to Go to the mountaintop, so to speak, because if you, when you're mapping the ocean, you can flip everything upside down and the deepest places are, you can fit Mount Everest into Challenger Deep and you'd still have a couple of miles to go to get to to the bottom. <laughs> That's incredible. I have 7,000 questions, um, most of which <laughs> I've learned about the ocean has been from being in it or uh, from 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 you and, and folks like you or my children when they were younger, they've gotten so big now. It's crazy. Um, they loved the show. Uh, maybe you're familiar with it. A cartoon called Octonauts. Oh, yes. The I mean, Octonauts are awesome. Truly. Yeah. I could not. I try <laughs> to get them to watch it still, and they're and they're older. Uh, but I'm like, come on, guys. Uh, let's, let's, let's do some Octonauts. It's, uh, the amount I've learned uh, from that show is, is fantastic. Um, but 
Yeah, it's when you consider just the depth of it, um, before we get into sort of the mechanics of how the deep works, it's truly astonishing. It's really incredible. So so just for folks to let's hit the bullet points, how deep is Challenger Deep? How far down are we going? Challenger Deep is within the Mariana Trench. So that, that gives you uh, some context right there. Challenger Deep itself is made up of three pools, three depressions that are within this region known as Challenger Deep. Okay. And the eastern pool is where, uh, that's where the record, that's where Victor Vescovo set uh, the record. I think it's 10,989 uh, meters. I'll have to, to double check that. Victor took me to the western pool which is not quite as deep, but it's still deep. We we went to ten thousand nine hundred nineteen meters. No judging here. So Don. so that so that whole region, <laughs> that whole region, is uh, nearly seven miles. So that's what I normally tell audiences that you're, if you run a ten k race, you still would not get to the bottom of Challenger Deep if you were running uh, vertically from the surface of the ocean down to where Challenger Deep is. That's incredible. That's incredible. Um, I realized I forgot I had it sitting over here. I asked my children before I left this morning if they had any questions for you. Because again, they're big octonauts. And so my yeah. seven-year-old, I don't know if we can read this. My seven-year-old wrote this question. And I believe it says, and he pronounces it the Marinera Trench. Uh, he yeah. said, what does the bottom of the Marinera Trench look like? I feel like that's a good time to yeah. ask that question. So when you get well, down to seven um, miles, what are we talking about? It's very, it's very desolate, uh, for one thing. My experience, and and it it, it goes back to uh, plate tectonics. So if you'll uh, allow me to just go back out to the thirty-five thousand foot uh, picture, we we have three major big boundaries, uh, three types of cracks that dominate our planet. So I live in Southern California in Redlands. We're only a few miles away from the San Andreas Fault, which everybody is. Yeah. So that's one major type of crack where tectonic plates are sliding past each other. Mm -hmm. In fact, the horrific earthquake that took place recently in Turkey and Syria, that it was that type of major plate boundary or major crack. And the plates are sliding past each other. Then there's a type of crack where uh, the inside of the earth is is coming out uh, of that crack and uh, the tectonic plates are moving apart. And that's where you see the the tube worms and the giant clams and the underwater hot springs, the so-called hydrothermal vents. Those are the places that that I'm most familiar with and that I've studied in submersibles before. Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench is the third major type of plate boundary where uh, the inside of the earth is not coming out. Uh, The earth, one part, one plate tectonic plate is actually going underneath another. The the plates are colliding. So they're not sliding past each other. They're not moving apart. They're colliding. Okay. They're crashing into each other. Bang, bang. So if you think about the Himalaya mountains, that's that type of boundary. Here's one side note. One recent thing I learned, which is very exciting coming back to Virginia, the Appalachian mountains here, it turns out, are not very high, but turns out among the oldest on the planet because 
they, I, I don't know the mechanics of it, but I guess used to be part of Scotland and the, the uh-huh. West Coast yeah. of Africa. And I couldn't believe, uh, I don't remember what the number is at all, but same thing, right? Right. Yeah. So that so this whole planet is is dynamic, right. and things are sliding around and moving apart and crashing into each other, and so because of the Mariana Trench being this type of uh, collision zone, what we saw were vast fields of broken up rocks, uh, where the collision between the Pacific Plate and the Philippine Plate uh, had occurred. So we didn't see uh, hot springs and and, uh, abundant life, but we did see uh, these collision zones. And uh, it's also very desolate down there as well. Uh, If you you don't see rock piles, you just see see, uh, a desolate uh, plain. We were in a a sort of a basin within the, the Challenger Deep. We did see things that live because... The pressure uh, at Challenger Deep, 16,000 pounds per, per square inch. I mean, that's just uh, And there are all kinds of ways to express that. When I've uh, spoken to kids recently, I've, I've said it's like a, a stack of 26 jumbo jets sitting on your, your big toe. Or <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, it, it's, just, it, it's just enormous. And, of course, there is the, the styrofoam cup test that you're – your listeners won't be able to to see this, but this is the styrofoam cup that's normal, and then this is how it shrunk at Challenger Deep. Unbelievable. To a fraction of the size. But there are creatures that can withstand that pressure. Uh, they can withstand uh, the cold because it's, it's near freezing uh, at the bottom of, of all of the world ocean, and it's completely dark. But we saw anemones. Uh, we saw sea cucumbers. Uh, we didn't see any fish because uh, fish are not known to exist uh, deeper than 8,000 meters or so. Okay. And we were at 10,919 or 10,900 throughout most of the dive. Now, if real quick, I, I mean, I, if, again, I, I, I don't know anything about anything here. Um, and I know you're, you're, you know, adjacent to marine biology, but, but how does a body... How is a body mechanically built to be able to withstand that kind of pre- like, even if it's desolate at the bottom and we barely have rocks? Like you said, eight thousand yeah. meters. I mean, I don't understand how something could could be built even if it doesn't have any sort of mechanics at all. Like I, I, how? <laughs> yeah. How? So this this is the miracle. Uh, this is the miracle that marine biologists are currently studying. You know, how is it possible for any of these creatures to exist? Uh, uh, in in these places, uh, they, they they regulate the the gas, the gases uh, that are in their bodies. Uh, they have adaptations in their uh, their their tissues, uh, their their bones or their cartilage. Uh, the the snailfish that we did record via camera because we were not sent down to Challenger Deep by ourselves in the submersible. We actually had a robot that went with us and was in Challenger Deep was in the deepest part of the Western pool uh, with us to help us with navigating. We were able to ping off of that robot and understand our, our pretty exact position. But there was another robot that we dropped higher up uh, into Challenger Deep and it landed at around 7,400 meters. And it was therefore able to get amazing footage uh, of the snail fish 
the 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 deepest uh, species of fish uh, that's known. Snailfish actually uh, exist at all depths. You can even find species of snailfish in in estuaries. But this particular species uh, of snailfish uh, is is the deep sea or the hadal. Uh, hadal is an acronym that really comes from Hades, from hell. I mean, these these animals, <laughs> they're they're living <laughs> in what we would consider uh, hell. Yeah. So there there are uh, marine biologists uh, like Mackenzie Geringer and Alan Jameson and many many others who are. That is what they do. They they study these fish. They're discovering new species uh, of creatures uh, in these depths, and they're trying to understand how it is that they they do what they do. In terms of the species that are known around the hydrothermal vents, where they are living in complete darkness, yes, but they are living uh, with chemicals coming out of the seafloor that are like uh, a toxic sewer because of the uh, the zinc and the uh, fluids coming out of those vents are are toxic, and then they are also the, the, those fluids are coming out at 400 degrees uh, Celsius. Uh, so how are they able to withstand that? There are adaptations from these creatures that we can certainly use in uh, bio uh, pharmaceuticals. Maybe there is a, a a cure for long COVID or a cure for cancer that we can learn about from uh, studying these creatures, that's, uh, of course, that's beyond, that's above my pay grade because as a geologist, I look more at the, uh, the rocks and the sediments and, of course, uh, mapping, mapping that terrain. But this is why it's important to, to study and to know as much as we can about our own planet. And there's so much, we have a long way to go. It's wonderful that we are thinking about going back to Mars, and I think the, the Artemis uh, mission is absolutely fantastic uh, to go back to the moon. But we are indeed still only 24.7% uh, along the way of mapping, just mapping uh, the ocean floor uh, to get to 100%. We are only 24.7% of the way there, and we're trying to get to 100% by 2030. So, so I want to I wanna understand better. Thank you for all that. So 24.7%. Where were you last time we talked in 2018? How, I'm trying to understand sort of the rate of increase. Well, there's been a lot of activity. Maybe we were around 16 or 17% when I talked to you back then. Because of the awareness that the Seabed 2030 initiative has been raising, and Seabed 2030 is uh, it's a multi-nation uh, initiative, but it's actually run by the Nippon Foundation uh, of Japan and also the General Bathymetric Chart of the Oceans. And it is now a, an officially endorsed program of the United Nations, so that really helps to get the word out. So since, so since the word has gotten out, there has been more research activity. Uh, there are corporations that are mapping uh, the seabed or the seafloor uh, and opening up their data, uh, data that they've had stored. They've already done the mapping, but they just haven't released the data. So that's one of the big things that we're trying to do is to get uh, companies to release their data. And of course, every time uh, we go out on oceanographic research expeditions, we're going to to new, we're covering new ground, and we're slowly but surely uh, adding 
uh, to to that percentage. So it seems like there's a lot of momentum finally, and I wanted to get into a little bit the new high seas ocean treaty mm-hmm. that um, again not yes. I mean as of this recording not ratified by anybody. But we've got language, which is a hell of an achievement because from what I understand, this is 15, 20 years in the making. Something yes. like that. Yes, I um, have colleagues who uh, colleagues at Scripps Institution of Oceanography who have been at this. Uh, since the beginning, like my colleague Lisa Levin, a very famous marine biologist uh, at Scripps, and then some of her colleagues have been involved uh, in this for the last 10 years, and they, they've been running the Deep Ocean uh, Strategic Initiative, uh, which has members who were in New York participating in negotiating that language. Yeah, so it, it is, it, this is a big deal. Yeah. So could you give us the, because what I'm, what I'm getting to is, We've become so much more aware of all the heat the ocean has absorbed. We've become so much aware, much more aware of how and where and and why in places we have completely overfished parts of it. We are mapping more of it than ever, but you know we're uh, you know at almost twenty five percent. Just an incredible achievement to be able to do that in any capacity. We're aware of so much more. You've got these incredible marine biologists like Dr. Ayala Elizabeth Johnson who are writing ocean policy, and she's got books and all that kind of stuff. And and I've always loved her quote of how do we use the ocean without using it up? And that is becoming more pertinent because of things like hey. If we're going to transition to these EVs that it turns out we can't really charge anywhere, we need all these metals and we need all these different things if we're going to rewrite our geopolitics. So could you give us the foundation of sort of the bullet list of what this treaty will look like um, so that people understand what the high seas are? Technically, it's a real thing. It's not just a pirate Mm -hmm. term. And then, I guess, (laughs) how that might fit into this whole picture of using the ocean without using it up with potential mining with biodiversity, with understanding uh, tectonic plates and, mm-hmm. and all of those things. I know that's a big ask, but again, trying to just frame it for people so understand, you know, where we're trying to do things. Yeah, in a very simple frame, the, the high seas are the areas that are beyond our national jurisdiction. Uh, every country has an exclusive economic zone that extends out 200 miles uh, from our shorelines. That belongs to us. That belongs to our country. But if you go beyond 200 miles, there is this area known as the high seas. And we say that the ocean covers 70 or 71% uh, of our planet's surface. The high seas cover 40%. So this is a huge area beyond but not the of national, our ocean, of our planet's uh, surface. Of our planet's surface. That's incredible. So of the of the seventy percent, forty percent is uh, is high seas. Forty percent does not belong to to anyone, so to speak. Sure, but in a way, it does belong to us, and it must. It needs to be cared for. It it does need to be regulated, because the ocean is so dynamic. If you think about fishing, for instance, we're able to fish within our exclusive economic zone within our 200 meters, because the fish have come there. They've come there from, uh, from the high seas. If we allow activities out in the high seas as though it's a wild west out there, well, these are not Norwegian waters or they're not Canadian or American or Mexican waters. Uh, they're just the high seas. So let's just pollute Let's just uh, fish the living daylights out of it. 
let's mine, let's do all these kinds of things uh, without any consequence. Uh, these are the high seas. We don't have to worry about it. That is not true. Uh, and and uh, oceanographic science has known this for, for decades. And the idea of this so-called high seas treaty is to agree to uh, protect and regulate the activities uh, of the high seas so that all of us uh, can benefit. Because if those oceans are super polluted or, or uh, overfished, the oceans don't just sit there statically. Uh, the oceans are dynamic. We have the, the currents that are at the surface and that are underneath that bring all kinds of, 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 uh, of uh, features to, to our waters. Everything is connected. Everything is in motion. Everything is circulating. So you can't just uh, damage uh, the high seas and think that that is not going to uh, affect you in your territorial waters. The amazing thing, thing that happened in New York was that they finally, among all of the, the nations there, finally agreed on language. What can we do to make sure that the high seas are protected? We can set aside many of these areas to be marine parks. And the idea of marine parks or marine protected areas is one of the most effective ways of ensuring that we keep the oceans healthy for all of us so that there are enough fish uh, in the ocean, so that there, uh, the, the, the quality uh, of the water is such that uh, coral reefs uh, will survive. Uh, another thing that was uh, discussed there uh, in that language is the idea of seabed mining. We cannot, at this point, we cannot allow uh, the seabed uh, in these areas beyond our national jurisdiction uh, to just be uh, openly mined. We do not know what the consequences are yet. Uh, ecosystems, not just fish that swim at the surface or fish that swim uh, in, in the waters beneath the surface, but the fish that live uh, uh, on the bottom and all of the other creatures that live on the bottom, their their habitats they are the equivalent of uh, the Amazon rainforest down there. We can't just plow through and uh, mine in the Amazon jungle and think that there are no consequences there. Same, similar thing in the ocean. So, uh, and the other thing about seabed mining is that there is an idea that perhaps uh, the, the minerals, the, of course, manganese, the manganese nodules are, are famous but in terms of our, our lithium uh, batteries, where you're, you're not going to solve the lithium shortage by mining the seafloor. In fact, uh, there's a place near where I live called the Salton Sea, mm -hmm. uh, where the Salton Sea is actually one potential answer to lithium. And there, hopefully there's a way that we can uh, environmentally get what we need uh, with, without seabed mining. But, but one part of the language that's coming out of uh, the negotiations is going very, treading very, very carefully in the seabed mining space. So th those, those are three major areas that, that I'm touching on very generally. The whole idea of creating more marine parks for protection. And this has implications for uh, fisheries 
making sure that the high seas are not uh, overfished, and then uh, the seabed mining uh, issue. And when you think about this also, you're thinking about the ocean not just at the surface, but this is an, uh, what we need to be understanding about the high seas is that this involves the near surface and, and mid-level waters, but also the deep waters all the way down to the seabed. So we need to think about the ocean as a three-dimensional space uh, and, and treat it as such. I feel like I learned a lot from Octonauts in that sense with the midnight zone and everything. Yes, really understanding exactly. For the first time, the layers and how they all connect and 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 work together. I would love to see a, a an episode about uh, about the treaty. So th- thank you for digging onto all that. It's it's it seems so timely, but I imagine you know the pressure has mounted. The more we know, and the more that you get this outside pressure from society and economies to, again, replace every car on the road, but also from corporate interests who are who are trying to do that and, and nationalities who are going, okay, if oil is not the thing, which all of our geopolitics have been based on for 100 years, then what are the other minerals that are? I wanted to ask, and, and I'm curious about this because I'm woefully uninformed on this, which is, I, I need to do a better job, but domestically on land and some territorial waters, there has been a very understandable pushback from indigenous groups saying, hey, listen, I we understand the mining that theoretically needs to be done to support these things. But one, that's our lands and waters, which, you know, we have certain rights over, obviously, and should have more of. We're seeing this with the Colorado River, for example. Does that come into play at all with the high seas conversations at all? I, I Again, I'm, I'm just so uninformed on this, but I, I would love to understand that a little bit better and what input uh, that huge variety of folks might have considering, you know, they've, they've been sailing those waters a hell of a lot longer than we have. It, it plays a huge role. In fact, the High Seas Treaty, uh, people who are involved in the High Seas Treaty uh, are also involved in, I would say, two other major conferences uh, that have immediately preceded what happened in New York with the High Seas Treaty. One is the conference that I was just at, uh, the R Ocean Conference in Panama. And then prior to that, it was the International uh, Marine Protected Areas uh, Congress that took, yes, IMPAC, IMPAC, that took place in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, at both of those meetings... There was a huge emphasis, and I would say at the International Marine Protected Areas Congress, there was a much bigger emphasis on the knowledge of indigenous scientists. Traditional ecological knowledge, traditional uh, indigenous knowledge, that is science. We, we have our, our Western perspective, but when we're talking about especially protecting and understanding areas that we have not really known that much about. The ocean has been a mystery to us. The, the indigenous uh, peoples, uh, the, the Micronesians, the Polynesians, uh, indigenous uh, peoples uh, of Central and South America, North America, they have known more, uh, not only about the ocean, but about protecting and sustaining the ocean. And so that that science now has, has come to, to the fold, and it means everything. It means everything in terms of 
trying to achieve what we need to achieve with regard to protected areas. It, it seems like, I was just going to say, it's, you know, so many of these folks have been saying for thousands of years, but, but even more vocally, uh, you know, in, in the past 100, like, look, these are our oral histories of, uh, you know, our travel and where we have been and where we have lived. And no one really believes them um, because they don't call it science. And then mm -hmm. someone does some archaeological finding and says, well, it looks like someone sailed from one place to another, which seems impassable 12,000 mm -hmm. years ago. And you go, well, well, hold on. There, there's much more to this. And, and maybe we should do a better job listening. I had uh, uh, Jessica Hernandez on the show, who, who is incredible. And, and she was, mm -hmm. um, her book is wonderful. And, and just, again, trying to really understand that and the history there and the perspective there. Yes. Plus, we've had some, we have so many indigenous uh, scientists who have gone through the, the normal Western uh, system and they have PhDs. They, they are doing uh, peer-reviewed, substantive, rigorous uh, research that incorporates uh, this knowledge, uh, their own knowledge, uh, according to Western scientific practices, too. So it's, I think it's a wonderful time. Uh, for for this awakening, and we need it now, just in time. So at the the International Mar Marine Protected Area Congress, uh, that was talked about a lot. It was not talked about as much at the R Ocean Panama conference that I was at, uh, but still, the R Ocean conference was about uh, countries uh, coming together to to make specific action commitments. Uh, what are we going to do to protect these areas? How much are we going to protect? And the government of Panama made an amazing announcement at the beginning of our meeting, which was uh, our meeting started on March the 2nd. Panama uh, has agreed to protect not just 30% of their territorial waters, but 50% because there is this movement 30 by 30 that you may have heard about. Protect 30% of land and ocean, by the year 2030, we're going to have a fighting chance of helping this planet to survive. And I know for, uh, it, 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 we still have a long way to go there uh, in terms of understanding what 30% means and that we can't use as part of our 30% uh, indigenous lands uh, and, unless they uh, agree to that, unless they are, have a seat at the table and are part of the the negotiation to establish, you know, what is going to be the 30%. But in Panama, they have upped it to 54% uh, in terms of their, of their ocean. They are protecting 54% of their ocean uh, with uh, the, the indigenous uh, tribes as part of that, a big part of that discussion. So for us to have our conference and there were 600 delegates, 600 of us, from pretty much all of the ocean nations uh, of the world, and many of us from uh, NGOs, conservation organizations, and a few of us from industry. I was sent as an industry delegate from ESRI, as we care so much about mapping uh, the, the ocean and are participating in that. It, it was fantastic to finish our conference and then hear that the high seas treaty folks had uh, had made it made it into port so to speak at least with the <laughs> with the the language being agreed sure. to sure so 
the next, obviously, so so much has happened. So much is is happening. There's so much, you know, we're on the precipice of of so many things from our our tools to our knowledge to our understanding, uh, which can be two different things. To, um, you know, some serious make or break circumstances around ocean heating and acidification and and all things uh, like that. Sea level rise, which uh, seems like we can't really put back in the box among everything else. Tell me really what, I guess, for you, the next five, 10 years looks like your overarching mission. So if you said it's the idea of sort of how we spend our time is how we spend our days or how we spend our days is how we spend our time, whichever way you do it. If you had to start at 30,000 feet, you know, by 2030, by 2035 and dial it down to how you're spending your days and your weeks and your months, what does that look like for you most strategically with your work besides obviously increasing the percentage of the ocean that's uh, mapped and how can the rest of us really play a part there knowing everything we know and the work we have to do? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that is really not talked about uh, enough is the idea of uh, connecting each other in terms of our, our data and our knowledge. I think a tagline that's sort of emerging uh, at Esri is, is linking science to action by taking uh, a geographic approach with uh, geographic information systems or geographic tools. And so that, that's really uh, the, the folks, everybody is, is creating uh, data, everybody is, is mapping, uh, everybody is taking uh, measurements, uh, we are now coming to this realization that we need to to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and that we need to set aside areas of land and ocean to protect. I mean, those are, are larger overarching ideas, but still a central problem that we're facing is that we don't understand each other and we, we are not collaborating. We're not working together with each other. And we're going to see this. With, I mean, the High Seas Treaty is an example of that because it took it took a good ten years for the nations to even agree on language as to what to do with the high seas. Well, we've known that the problem has exist has existed, but what do we do specifically? Uh, and it's taken ten years for people to understand each other and to to work together, so that they have they they now have these words. They, they have the treaty. Then it's going to be another who knows how long to uh, ratify. Uh, as you mentioned before, the, the treaty has got to be ratified through legislative action in each of the countries. Oh, my gosh, we still don't have Ukraine in NATO or in the European Union. Same kind of thing. So what we do with, with our technology is we provide a, the, the geographic approach is a powerful means for uh, helping people to understand each other through maps, uh, helping people to explore uh, different solutions, again, through maps and spatial analysis, and helping people, again, through maps to find, to reach agreement. And so we do that with the, with the technology uh, that, that we create that helps people to collect data, to visualize and map the data, uh, to to understand what the data are telling them through analysis and modeling, then they can use that to to plan, like plan out where additional marine protected areas should be, uh, what the boundaries should be, 
how can we understand uh, the biodiversity and the, the protection of carbon and the food that's going to be produced within that marine protected area. That's part of the, the work that we're doing with National Geographic's uh, Pristine Seas program. Uh, then to make, make decisions, uh, how should we enforce uh, regulations or activities in that marine protected area. Then we'll have to circle back around and collect more data because you don't just collect data once, especially in the ocean. Uh, the ocean is so dynamic that things are changing from second to second, let alone day to day and week to week and month to month and year to year. So whenever we can collect data, uh, we have to understand uh, that piece of the planet again. So uh, I call this a, a virtuous circle. Uh, using that that geographic approach with uh, with our geographic tool, so that's really what I'm going to be working on. That's why I'm at Esri, and that is the that's the mission that Esri has for for the ocean and and for the land. We're involved in all kinds of thirty by thirty uh, initiatives. You know, everybody is is doing their part within their programs to to try to to try to help. It seems like. Governments and, and certainly corporations are probably increasingly looking towards your work uh, as a as a platform and as a tool for for achieving some of these enormous milestones. Well, there's something magic about a map. You know, a, a map is is a language. People can stare at maps for for hours on end and discover all kinds of things. When when maps become uh, dynamic and interactive. You take that and you you can, uh, as we say, force multiply all the different things that you want to to achieve. So we, we are not the only company that uh, works with maps or create maps. There are many other fantastic uh, companies and initiatives out there. And we all need to to do our part. At Esri, we've just had the the great uh, pleasure of, of working with so many governments for, for so long and with so many organizations like Conservation International and the Nature Conservancy. And we're doing a lot with the National Geographic right now. We're very excited about that because we are connected with the National Geographic in ways that we've never been connected with them before. And National Geographic is connected with Disney in ways that has never been connected before. And that's a, that's a powerful combination in terms of reaching out to people and educating them uh, about what needs to be done and, and what we can all how we can all participate. Well, I love that there is so much to do, uh, but it is incredibly viable work. However, folks uh, find a way to participate. It's difficult to visit any body of water, uh, much less the ocean. Even if you're just standing on the shore and running away from the waves, like my kids <laughs> still kind of yeah. do. Um, much less going out on it. We took... Um, we're very lucky. We're about an hour from Virginia Beach, and uh, which is great. And went out and uh, did a little whale watching uh, a couple weeks ago. First time in my life I'd seen whales uh, up close, and it was <laughs> just uh, incredible. And again, I, I I don't understand how you how you interact with these things in any way, and not just be in awe on one and immediately think like, oh, what can we do to conserve mm -hmm. this at 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 all costs? Um, you know, it's it's. It's pretty incredible. Um, so 
Don, I don't want to keep you forever here. You're you're incredible. You've now earned your title, Deep Sea Don, a uh, hundred times <laughs> over. You made deepest uh, sea Don as it goes. So I'm just going to ask you the last couple of questions. We ask everyone, and then we're going to uh, get you out of here. But thank you so much oh, for thank your you. time and everything you're doing. And um, it's it's always special. Who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? Oh, in the past six months. Mm-hmm. Well, in the past six months, I would I would have to say that it's Victor Biscovo, uh, because he he gave me the the opportunity to to make this uh, historic dive. What he is doing in terms of opening people's eyes uh, to to the wonders and the utility uh, of the ocean that has opened the door uh, for me to talk even more. Uh, about the ocean because everybody's interested in in this dive and in terms of uh, being the first black person to do this I'm hoping for the day when we don't have to make these kinds of of landmarks or I've actually gotten a lot of social media hate about you know why what who cares why is it why is it important that you're the first black person to do to do anything hopefully we'll get beyond that but until we do the opportunity that that Victor has given to me, and I would say Esri, because uh, uh, this has been a collaboration between Caladan Oceanic, uh, Victor's prior company, and and Esri, it's opened up a whole new, more avenues for me to to reach out to uh, to young people who have never. I, I got a, a wonderful uh, email from uh, a little boy in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who is part of a a Justice Code Junior Science Club, part of the National Black National Society for Black Engineers, and he said, "Please, in his in his <laughs> in his email, please come to Albuquerque and speak to us." I wasn't able to do that, but I was able to to reach out to his club and to meet him and and his clubmates and teachers in Albu- all black in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and and I'm. Uh, the, these are the types of opportunities that that I'm getting, uh, and it's it's thanks to uh, what what Victor uh, has provided uh, for me with this adventure to Challenger Deep. Uh, that's special, and I, and I I love the utility of saying yes, I did this, but how can I use it as this Trojan horse to expand my my microphone? The tr- Trojan horse is that's fantastic. So yeah, um, <laughs> you know, let's be um, subversive. <laughs> Did your mom and did you guys talk about uh, potentially doing this dive at all uh, before she? Oh, we did crossed on and and I'm yes. so curious. That just must have been you know again I've got these little children who are you know incredibly privileged and 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 they're wonderful and curious on one hand and morons on the other and it's the best <laughs> thing ever every day um, you know and they write these signs about the you know the the marinara trench. Um, but it must have been incredible for her to know that there's this possibility that her daughter was going to, you know, because not just because of Victor, but because of all of your work for decades, you're going to, you know, be able to do this thing. Like what, I'm curious what those conversations were, were like. Oh yes. My mother, bless her heart. She has, (laughs) she has, um, uh, on on one hand, she's been scared to death, but on the other hand, she's been overjoyed about the, uh, the opportunities, uh, that, that I have gotten through uh, through oceanography because in the 1980s I, I went to Antarctica on uh, an oceanographic research 
expedition. I was a Marine technician at the time. So I was working uh, on board this ship for six months out of the year, two months on, two months off. And so she has been uh, on these wild rides with me ever since then. And the first time going to Antarctica and seeing icebergs and penguins and being stuck in the middle of the um, the Weddell Sea purposely, because this was a drill ship. So we purposefully anchored ourselves uh, in the seabed so that we could extract uh, cores of sediment and rocks and study them. Then we had to have another ship accompany us to lasso and pull icebergs out of the way so we wouldn't be run over by icebergs. <laughs> and then I've had uh, a dives in, in Alvin, uh, the famous Alvin submersible of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, which was just refitted recently to reach 6,500 meters. So they'll, they'll still it's be incredible. able to reach 90% of ocean depths there. So she, she has been with me all along and she knew about the invitation from Victor and she was going to hold her breath and, and hope for the best. And that's why we, we decided to, to see if we could get full-time nursing uh, for her so that I, I could leave for a couple of weeks in order to, to do this. And it just turned out that uh, she, she passed uh, before, before we even got to, to that point. But we were, we were in the, uh, that scenario where uh, I was having a, a nurse come over to, to, uh, to help me. And then that nurse was going to be the person to stay with her 24 hours a day. Once I left for challenger deep, but we didn't have to, we didn't have to worry about that in a sense. Well, yeah, but she was with me. She must, uh, <laughs> she must have been still be uh, so, so, proud of you uh, again you've done such enormous work for the world and that is quite the quite the achievement again like I, you know i'm the most sentimental proud like i'm going to keep this forever and that's ridiculous you know she must have all of your shenanigans must have been just something else i have some wonderful i have uh, a couple of binders full of of uh, letters and drawings uh, from children which is the most precious uh, especially the drawings and they, their own depictions of of uh, me and uh, the the ship and the submersible and uh, Victor and our our trip to Challenger Deep, uh, and those are absolutely uh, precious. And then I also have a medallion from Don Walsh. Don Walsh is uh, he and Jacques Picard were the first human beings to descend to Challenger Deep in 1960. Right. And the, I was reading about that and I could not believe how long ago that they did that. I thought it was the yeah. 80s for some reason. That's No, incredible. it was 1960 and Don Walsh is still with us. I was on a panel with him just a couple of weeks ago in San Diego where he gave me his uh, medallion, uh, the challenge coin commemorating his, his trip, his descent to challenge. He was a, uh, he was in the uh, the U.S. Navy uh, at the time, uh, so so that is is precious, absolutely precious, and he has been a uh, a mentor and a voice for the deep ocean. He has helped uh, Victor, uh, he's helped James Cameron uh, with his descent, and he is he's just done amazing amazing work for the ocean science and the ocean engineering community. He's an engineer, really. That's, I mean, yeah. that perspective is so 
important and so wonderful. And, you know, very semi-related. My my grandfather was on a submarine in World War II, and these things were this big. And now uh, one of my best friends in the world is a submarine captain uh, here in <laughs> Norfolk. And um, I went with him. And I mean, talk about enormous responsibility. Good Lord. Um, oh, especially yeah. someone oh, you've known gosh. since birth and you could tell some stories about. Um, but <laughs> we, he and I went, uh, there's a there's a few World War II submarines um, uh, docked around the U.S. I think there's three or four of them total. And we went to one in Connecticut to, to understand the difference between his life. And of course, he had learned more about it. And I'd always heard stories. But to go and go on one of these little things, these tin cans with, you know, the, the the steel is this thick and you think that's what they did. And they obviously didn't go that deep, but just to do it at all. And now what he does, um, you know, again, I think about that perspective and seeing it on his face versus how much we still don't know about the oceans, despite all of your work since those dives in the yes, 60s. And now yes. you're able to go now. I mean, it's just such an incredible transfer of, of knowledge and perspective. And it took decades uh, between uh, Don Walsh and Jacques Picard's dive, and when James Cameron went, decades passed, and and then uh, Victor's uh, huge achievement was uh, designing with Triton submarines the limiting factor, which is which can repeatedly go to any point uh, in the ocean, and a limiting factor now is part of uh, its owned and operated by Inkfish Expeditions. And so they have the, the submersible, they have the ship, and they will continue the work. But the limiting factor is known as the space shuttle of the ocean because it can repeat it. The Trieste and uh, James Cameron's uh, Deep Sea Challenger, those were one-time trips. But uh, but the limiting factor, as, as you know, is made... I mean, what a feat uh, of engineering. Just dozens. unreal. Yeah. Unreal. Unreal. The the wear and tear. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. Well, thank you. Last question, Don. What is a book you have read this year uh, that has opened your mind to maybe a topic you hadn't considered before or actually changed your thinking or your work in some way? we got a whole list now on Bookshop and people love it and they hunt these things down and take your take your time. I can't remember books I finished last night. So I would have to say Surrender by uh, Bono. Uh, oh, that, I haven't checked that, that book- out yet. That book has really, uh, in a way, it's it is his story, but being a, a U two fan and having uh, and he and I are the same age, uh, having lived through these periods uh, of history with with him and with the band and with with U two, and hearing his perspective now, uh, it, it has just really strengthened me. So uh, surrender. Has has really been uh, an amazing uh, read for me. So so that's, I, and I'm still awesome. thinking about it. Awesome. Well, we'll we'll throw it on the list for sure. Um, last thing, Don. Where can our uh, listeners and viewers and whatever find you on the internet these days? Oh, I am Deep Sea Dawn on just about any social media platform: Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and um, yeah. So just it's just Deep Sea Dawn. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, listen, I, I cannot thank you enough for your time, for coming back and putting up with me once again. Um, you're you're a hero oh, for a million a wonderful, reasons. Wonderful. Especially that one. Fantastic experience. Um, so much I fun to talk the, to you. I love that you're getting to talk to kids more and more. Um, and it's just, um, yeah, it's it's very special, unique work that you do. And we're we're thankful to have you. Well, I'm thankful for the work that you do as well. 
as we as we pay attention to to what we're doing and what we're seeing and what we're learning, we we realize that everything is important. Everything, know, everything is important. has its its role. Yeah, it does. It does. That's it. Uh, important Not Important is hosted by me, Quinn Emmett. It is produced by Willow Beck. Uh, it is edited by Anthony Luciani, and the music is by Tim Blaine. Uh, you can read uh, our critically acclaimed newsletter and get notified about new podcasts and videos at importantnotimportant.com. Uh, we've got fantastic t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, and more at our store. Uh, uh, I'm on Twitter at Quinn Emmett. If Twitter is still alive, who can know? Uh, and I'm also on LinkedIn. Just search for my name. And as always, you can send us feedback, thoughts or questions, guest suggestions, anything like that at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Thank you for listening, watching, whatever you might be doing. Have a great day and thanks for giving a shit. 